I think for many of us who are Bible-believing Christians, it's hard for us to comprehend the reality that there are just so many people who teach the Scriptures, whether that be pastors or seminary professors or Bible college professors, whatever the case may be, but religious leaders who deny very important doctrines of the Bible, such as the virgin birth. Now, there are many churches, churches in our own community, that would not teach the virgin birth of Christ, deny the miracles that Jesus performed, deny his deity. Well, that may seem shocking to us, but some things never change. In today's passage, we're introduced to the Sadducees. The distinctive of the Sadducees was that they were a very liberal group in their understanding of biblical doctrine. They were also a very important movement in Jewish circles. They tended to be the elite. They tended to be the more wealthy of the society. They were very influential in both the politics. The Sanhedrin was made up of many Sadducees, as well as religious leaders. Many of the priests were Sadducees. There were three main groups. There were the Essenes, there were the Pharisees, which we're the most familiar with, and then there were the Sadducees. But what distinguished the Sadducees was their rejection of cardinal doctrines of the Scripture. According to Acts 23, verse 89, the Sadducees denied the teaching of the resurrection. They denied the existence of angels. They denied the existence of the Spirit. Acts 23, 8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Excuse me, that reference was 23, 8. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the Sadducees also taught that there were no rewards or penalties after death. There was no afterlife at all. There's an old saying, it certainly is not original with me, that uh, if you want to remember what the Sadducees believe, uh, just remember that uh, they did not believe in the resurrection. That is why they were sad, you see. Okay. I know, I know. Bible humor. What? Anyway, they did not hold to the resurrection at all. Our passage centers in on their denial of the resurrection. Notice verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. These same Sadducees, being convinced in their own heart and mind that there was no resurrection, came to ask Jesus a question centered upon the resurrection. It was intended to make Jesus look foolish. It was intended to reveal the absurdity of believing in something like the resurrection. Our passage also reminds us that this encounter takes place on the very same day in which Jesus had already been addressing issues with the Pharisees and the Herodians. All of that taking place on the very 
same day. Each person taking their own shot at Jesus and trying to bring him down, but all in different areas. The question we looked at last week, the distinction between church and state, if you will, today, this doctrine of the resurrection. So our theme this morning is that Jesus addresses the liberal theologian's rejection of the doctrine of the resurrection and lessons that we can learn from that in how to deal with people who deny cardinal doctrines of the scripture. So we begin by looking at the question that is put to Jesus. The question is rather bizarre in order to demonstrate a point. It was intended to be a hypothetical that was just out there. The hypothetical is this. There was a woman. She had been married. She had also been widowed seven times, having no children. The question is, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Husband number one, husband number two, husband number three, husband number four, husband number five, husband number six, or husband number seven. Which one would be her husband in the resurrection? Verse 26. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall they be, for they all had her? To the Sadducees, the doctrine of the resurrection seemed foolish. How could one believe that a person would actually rise again from the dead? How does Jesus handle the Sadducees? What is his response to their unbelief? Well, notice his response. First, Jesus points out that the Sadducees are mistaken in their denial of the resurrection. Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. (laughs) That's pretty straightforward. Uh, That's pretty much in your face. He simply says, you are wrong. Jesus does not mince his words. Jesus confronts them about their error. And we too should stand for doctrinal purity. We need to assert the truth of the word of God and those that reject the truth of the word of God are wrong. They are in error. They are mistaken. We need to put our faith and trust and confidence in God's word. Jesus then provides an explanation for their error. Two reasons for the error in their thinking. What has led to this wrong doctrine, the denial of the resurrection? First, they are in error for they do not understand the nature of the scriptures. Verse 29. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures And then secondly, they are in error, for they do not understand the nature of the power of God, verse 29, nor the power of God. So he asserts two things. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. So let's go back and look at these two reasons. First, he says that they do not know the scriptures. They don't understand the scriptures' significance. 
When Jesus says in verse 29 that they do not know the scriptures, he does not mean that they are unfamiliar with the scriptures. He's not saying that you are unaware of what the scripture teaches. They know what the scripture teaches. They came up with this story based on Exodus, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, based on uh, Moses' teaching. They understand what the word of God says. But they don't understand the significance. They don't understand the importance of what is said. For notice in verse 29, it says, you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Obviously, they are taught about God's power. Obviously, they know some things about God's power. It is saying, but you don't understand the significance. You don't understand the relevance. You don't understand the, the importance, the degree of God's power. So too, Jesus is saying that Sadducees do not understand the nature or full significance of the scriptures, namely that the scriptures are the word of God. So we begin by asking the question, what do we know about the Sadducees and their view of scripture? Well, we know some very important things. First, we know that the Sadducees taught that each person should develop their own understanding of what the scriptures teach. They were not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees had this dogma of how the scriptures were to be interpreted and what the truth was. The Sadducees took the position that they rejected the teaching of the Pharisees and that everyone should pretty much decide for themselves what the word of God taught. They also believed that the understanding of the scriptures should be modified by logic, especially the matter of doctrine. So it was the responsibility of each person to read the scriptures and then say to oneself what is reasonable and what is unreasonable, what is acceptable and what is unacceptable, what is to be believed and what is not to be believed, what is truth, what is myth. If it was reasonable, it was to be accepted. If it was unreasonable, it was to be rejected. And then thirdly, they viewed the scriptures as being held at various levels. They viewed Moses as the greatest prophet. And so they held the Torah, or what we'd refer to as the law, or the first five books of the Bible, uh, those authored by Moses as being the most authoritative. And then the other books less authoritative than the Torah. They believe that Moses was a greater prophet than all the other prophets. So Jesus says that the Sadducees failed to fully appreciate the scriptures. And we learn that Jesus is going to address the very point of the inspiredness of the word of God. The Pentateuch was not merely the teaching of Moses, but the teaching of God. Notice verse 24. Saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man does not if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Note Jesus' response, verse 31. 
And as for the as of the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what was said to you by God. They said, Moses said. Jesus said, verse 31, God said to you. Jesus does not say that you have not read what Moses said. He said, you have not read what God said. It's a reference to Exodus 3, verse 6. It is God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And he said, that is God, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was ashamed to look uh, at God. But God says, this is God speaking, not just Moses speaking. And he goes further and says in verse 31 that this is God not simply speaking to Moses. This is God speaking to you through what you have read. So what you read, the scriptures, is God speaking to you. That's the doctrine of inspiration. That's the belief that the scriptures are the very word of God. Thus, to reject the teaching of the resurrection was not merely to reject the teaching of Jesus, but to reject the teaching of the resurrection was to reject the teaching of God. The fact that the Bible is the word of God is very, very important for us to keep in mind when we consider the teaching of the Bible. 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We must be very careful in the way that we look at the Bible. We need to be careful in our terminology. They said, Moses said. I often refer to the scriptures and say such things as Paul said or Paul wrote. There's nothing wrong with using that kind of vernacular as long as we remember that we're talking about the word of God. Not just what Paul said or what Paul thought, but Paul is speaking God's words. That the scriptures are inspired. It's very important that we do not hold portions of the Bible as superior to other portions of the Bible. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We need to understand that. Brother John Elias was with us at a couple of uh, Sunday nights ago as he was representing what the Islamic people believed. One of the attacks was that Jesus never said a particular thing. That's only taught in other portions of the Bible. That is raising what Jesus taught as being more important 
than what is taught in other portions of the Bible. You see, that's where they're wrong. That's where they're wrong. And if we're not careful, we can easily fall into that same trap. If we're not careful, if you have a red-letter Bible, you may begin to think that the words that are in red are more important than the words that are in black because these are the words that Jesus spoke. But what Jesus spoke were the words of God. And what Paul wrote were the words of God. So even Jesus' teaching is not greater than the book of Romans. We don't put the Gospels against the book of Romans or the book of Timothy or the book of 1 Peter, for it is all the Word of God. And secondly, we must not allow our reasoning or logic to determine what it is that we will accept as being the actual Word of God. Among liberal theologians, there have been uh, two great movements in modern history. They were the Jesus Seminar, followed by the Jesus Project. The Jesus Seminar came first. It was organized in 1985. Its purpose was to renew the quest of the historical Jesus and to report the results of its research to the general public. Rather than just to a handful of gospel specialists, initially, the goal of the seminar was to review each of the sayings and deeds attributed to Jesus in the Gospels and determine which of them could be considered authentic. This is from their website. Okay? So their goal was to read the Gospels and say, okay, now what did Jesus really say and what did Jesus really do? 30 scholars took up the challenge at the initial meeting in Berkeley, California. Eventually, more than 200 professionally trained specialists called fellows joined the group at various phases. After many years, they came to the conclusion that in the judgment of the Jesus Seminar Fellows, about 18% of the sayings and 16% of the deeds attributed to Jesus in the Gospels are authentic. 18% of what he said, and 16% of the deeds are authentic. They really happened. Everything else is myth. Everything else is made up. Everything else is unreliable because it didn't pass their scrutiny. It didn't pass their test of logic. It seemed unreasonable to them. We don't pick and choose what we believe in the Bible based on whether or not it seems reasonable to us. We accept all of what the Word of God teaches. And the second point is very closely related to that. The second point regarding the Sadducees' failure to believe was that the Scriptures taught concerning the resurrection was due to their inability to understand the nature or significance of the power of God. Notice verse 29. You are wrong because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. Though the Sadducees might mock the idea of a resurrection, they do so because they have such a shallow view of the power of God. To them it seemed unreasonable because it seemed impossible. How could someone be 
resurrected from the dead. How could a person who was dead live bodily again? That seemed impossible. Just as to many today, the miracles seem impossible. The virgin birth seems impossible. It's the deity of Christ seems impossible. So we're going to reject that because it seems impossible. It is unreasonable. <clears throat> now, I must confess to you, I can understand how atheists reject the scriptures. I don't have much problem with that. I can readily see if a person does not believe in God at all, that it doesn't surprise me that they don't accept the scriptures or follow the scriptures. That makes sense to me. But it is very hard for me to understand how those who believe in the Bible, even 18% of it, and they believe in the deeds, even 16% of it, how they stand in judgment over the miraculous sections of the word of God. You say, you see, what does a person believe? What does a person believe? Do they believe that God created the heavens and the earth? Do they believe that God initially gave us life, that life comes from God? If God gave life, he must be able to restore life. If God created the heavens and the earth, if God created man from dust, he must be able to give that man life again. If you don't believe in a creator, and if you don't believe in a God that at least gave life, then what does a person believe about God? What do they affirm? What, does this, what is this God able to do? What kind of power does he have? He says to the Sadducees, you don't understand the power of God. What kind of power does he have? If he can't heal, if he can't do any miracle whatsoever, what kind of power does he have? What can he do? Jesus says that's the basis. That's the reason for unbelief. It's a rejection of the scriptures, and it's a rejection of the power of God. Now, having said that, once again, Jesus does not skirt the question. He answers it, and he answers it straight on. The question is, verse 28, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall they be? For they all had her. Jesus' answer is straightforward. Answer comes in chapter 22, verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the answer is nobody's. Nobody's. Whose 
wife is she? Jesus' answer is, she's not anybody's wife. Because in the resurrection, people aren't going to be married. They're going to be like the angels who are in heaven now. They're not married. They're not married. The marital relationship will not exist in eternity. The Sadducees were wrong because they took a portion of scripture that applied to this life and not to the life to come. The Leverite marriage was instituted in order to raise up children in the name of the deceased spouse. Verse 25. Now there was seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. That's the Leverite marriage. In the Old Testament, if a person died and didn't have children, then the brother was to marry that woman and raise up children in their stead. They took that and said, okay, now in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Doesn't apply. There is no marriage. There is no bearing of children. Okay? There's, there's, no gonna be, there's gonna be no procreation in the new heaven and new earth. No more human beings. The earth will be plenty full from the redeemed that are raised from the dead. There is no problem here. The crowd was amazed by Jesus' teaching. That's the outcome, verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The Sadducees were silenced, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that, he had silenced the Sadducees. They didn't know what to say. They had met their match. But it's important to understand that they weren't converted. There's a difference. There's a difference. They decided not to take Jesus on anymore on religious matters, but, but they weren't converted. They didn't believe. What I want to do now is show, slow down and just ask some basic questions about application. Lessons to be learned from Jesus' response to unbelief. First and foremost, lessons concerning unbelief itself. Unbelief stems from two basic errors. The first is a failure to believe that the Bible in its entirety is the very word of God. Or, as Jesus put it, God speaking to us. If a person doesn't believe that the Bible in its entirety is the word of God, they are going to have many errors in their doctrine. But what's important for us to keep in mind is Jesus used the scriptures even with those who did not fully value the scriptures, and so should we. The unbelief of others did not deter Jesus from using the scriptures. What should we do when people that we are speaking to have a low view of the Bible or reject portions of the Bible? Answer, use the Bible anyway. Use the Bible anyway. Use the Bible anyway. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is the Bible itself, which is God's instrument to produce faith in people's hearts. Hebrews 4 says, For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. The scripture says that the Bible is, is living and breathing. It has a power of itself. It can produce faith where faith does not exist. Use the scriptures for the scriptures themselves are powerful. In fact, the scriptures say that if, there, if a person isn't going to be convinced by the scriptures, they're not going to be convinced by an evidentiary argument either. Listen to the words of Luke, chapter 16. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The uh, rich man dies and uh, is in torment and wants someone to go back and warn his family about this coming torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There is a huge debate in theological circles when it comes to apologetics. There are two main views. One is referred to as a presuppositional apologetic and the other is referred to as an evidentiary apologetic. Okay. So what is the best way to convince a person of the truth of God? The evidentiary apologists say, well, it's by producing evidences. Evidence that demands a verdict. You, you lay out reasons to believe and hopefully they will believe. The presuppositionalists Van Til, Westminster Seminary, etc., says, no, you use the scripture itself, the Bible, for the Bible is self-authenticating. The scriptures are what are going to convict an individual. So you use the scriptures. I don't know that you have to be hard and fast. I don't know that you have to choose one exclusively. But let me say to you that we should not lose our confidence in the scriptures. Because other people don't believe the Bible should not mean that we don't believe the Bible. And we certainly should not believe that the Bible is helpless in bringing conviction to the heart and mind of a person who doesn't believe. The Bible is self-authenticating. The Bible does produce faith. The second reason for unbelief is a failure to grasp God's power. Unbelief limits God's power. We can't limit God's power. We use such terms as almighty God. Almighty God. Meaning that God has all might. And all might is derived from his might. The only reason we have any strength at all is because of the strength that he gives us. The only reason we have life at all is because he is the giver and sustainer of life. He gives us life. He gives us power. He gives us the ability to reason. All that comes from God. He is almighty. 
Another word we use is sovereign. But we use it so often, I wonder if we know what it means. It means he is all-powerful. He is more powerful than any other being in the universe. He is sovereign. And Ephesians has this wonderful benediction. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. God can do more than what we can even conjure up. God can do more than anything we'd ever ask or anything that we ever think. We can't begin to approach the understanding of the power of God. But we must have enough humility that when Isaiah says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, to humble ourselves and say, you know, God could bring somebody back from the dead. You know, God could turn water into wine. The creator of the heavens and earth who made all things, certainly, who made all things out of nothing, make wine out of water. Who gave life initially could bring life back into a body. You know, we stand amazed. We stand amazed in today's day and age where a person can die and then in the first few moments there can be a, a shock that can be administered, a drug that can be shot into the veins and all of a sudden that heart starts beating again. What is done today was unthinkable 200 years ago. Unimaginable 200 years ago. Unreasonable 200 years ago. But that is nothing. That is nothing in comparison to what God is able to do. Anyone who is going to stand in judgment over the scriptures on the basis of what appears to be reasonable to them is an arrogant, and I'll watch my words carefully, but uh, it's foolish. It's foolish. Secondly, lessons learned about resurrection life. This passage teaches us we will not be married when we are in the resurrected state. What are we to learn from that? What do we learn from that? What's important to learn from that? But we learned something very important about relationships. In our present world, there is no relationship more dear or more precious than the relationship between a husband and a wife. That, according to the scriptures, is the greatest of all relationships. The second closest is the relationship of parents to children and children to parents. 
Genesis 2.24 says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this unique relationship is referred to in the scriptures as being one flesh. And uh, I could flesh that out for you uh, with a, a number of different references. Don't have time this morning, but that has three connotations to it, but I don't have time to go there. But it is a very unique and precious relationship. Oftentimes, funerals, here's a passage from Thessalonians. Now, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you would sorrow not even as others who have no hope. For if we believe in Jesus, that he died and rose again, even so those who also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And usually the application is, you'll be with your loved ones again. You'll be with your mom, you'll be with your dad, you'll be with your sister, you'll be with your brother. Well, you will be but you won't think of them as your mom and your dad. And you won't think of them as your sister and your brother. But that's not a loss. That's not a loss. For there is an intimacy that's greater than the intimacy of a husband and wife. There's an intimacy that's greater than a child and a daughter. Jesus said this in his high priestly prayer, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He said, I want them to behold my glory. You realize that in heaven, Our intimacy is going to be like the intimacy of the Trinity. That our love for one another is going to be like the intimacy that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In heaven, in the new heaven, and the new earth, the Christian that was your enemy on earth is going to be more important to you than even your wife was on this earth. For you will love, we will love each other perfectly, completely, intimately. You know, that's great news. For there are no cliques in heaven. There is no one ostracized in heaven. There is no one belittled in heaven. There is no one left out in heaven. There is no one that is going to feel like an intruder to enter into a conversation or a relationship in heaven. But every single brother and sister in Christ is going to be loved, celebrated, endeared, be meaningful, and important. Yes, we'll rejoice to see our brothers, our mothers, our fathers in heaven, but we're going to rejoice to see every single 
brother and sister in Christ in heaven. And then lastly, let us put our confidence in the resurrection. Just because there are a lot of religious leaders, just like the Sadducees, that don't believe in a bodily resurrection, doesn't mean we shouldn't believe in a bodily resurrection. We're a few short weeks away from Easter. In this passage, we were five days away. This is Tuesday. Five days away from Jesus coming forth bodily from the tomb. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. We believe that because Jesus came forth bodily from the dead, that you and I, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, will come forth bodily from the dead. Right now, if we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But one day, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back to this earth, he is going to raise the dead. And we are going to live in this new heaven and this new earth in bodies, a life much like the life we now live, but with a perfect intimacy that extends to all people. For we'll all be brothers and sisters in Christ. It's true. And the only reason that someone doesn't believe that is because they have a faulty understanding of the scriptures or they have a faulty understanding of the power of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the promise of the resurrection. We thank you for the truthfulness of your word. Oh Lord, help us in our consideration of that word to understand that all of the scripture, every word of it is true. Every word of it is indeed the word of God. Lord, help us to accept the scripture for what it is. God speaking to us. And then, Lord, help us not to analyze the scripture based on our puny understanding of what's possible and what's not possible. Oh, Lord, help us to remember that we're talking about God. We're talking about you. You who can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Lord, help us just to receive your word. Take it for what it is, your word to us. And Lord, give us the faith to believe in the power of God, the power that can raise the dead to life. And we thank you for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that through his death and his life, we experience the forgiveness of sins and we will enjoy new life and a new relationship with one another for all eternity. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.